Rodney, what's up, fella? Hydrogenated water. Mmm. Wait. Hydro- hydrogenized? Like, Hydro- how do you hydrated? say, are you adding more adding hydrogen, hydrogen yeah. to hydrogen? So mine, mine's like H6O or H7O. Oh. I don't even know what the... <laughs> <laughs> well, the O would... They, oh, yeah, I guess it's 2H, yeah. Yeah, I uh, have these hydrogen tablets. Uh-huh. You drop in the water and it kind of makes it, it... It's not really fizzy, but it adds hydrogen. Okay. And uh, supposedly it helps you your body with absorption of the water so you're actually getting more hydrated oh and so do you not have to drink as much water at that point theoretically yeah yeah so you say theoretically it helps or supposedly yeah it helps. i mean i've like, only like i got it and then we had our second kid so i haven't really tested it as mm. much but i, I have them I've, mm. I've used them like before soccer i don't know i felt like i played better I scored a goal <laughs> <laughs> the sign hey. of if it's working playing better at soccer i scored a goal so <laughs> what do you want welcome back to the more common podcast a place for genuine authentic conversation where we explore the fact that we have more in common than that which divides us. This time, it's still me, producer Rob. Once again, it's still Black History Month. It's the last week of it. I won't share anything with you guys because I want you, listener, to go out and do some research on yourself, do some Googles, and find an interesting fact that you can share with any one of your friends or family members. We have another review. It's from our reviewer, Brenda Nova, Soul to Soul Chat. Much gratitude for the invitation to engage in such a pleasant and vulnerable conversation with Rodney and Keith. I appreciated the welcoming, energetic atmosphere and what an awesome vessel they provide to share perspectives on emotionally charged topics. We're all divinely connected and it's our uniqueness that makes us stronger collectively. Cheers to having more in common than note. Once again, this entire first season in 2020 is all about a decade possible. And the focus, more so, is on pursuit. Remember, you can find all things More Common at morecommonpod.com. Episodes, merchandise, and our blog. Definitely, if you like what you hear, give us a like on your favorite podcast app. And leave us a review. And we'll do our best to try to share it on air. Today, we're with Brian Carroll, an inspirational human being whose positive outlook is an admirable and example for us all. We talk... Brian about going through some childhood trauma, generational knowledge, and forgiveness. Because if you're not in the right posture, you could be right and get arrogant, and and now you're you're uh you're pushing somebody's limits. You're being condescending, and you were right, but now because of the spirit and the posture that you're in, you're not, you're wrong. So it's important not to be condescending. It's important not to be arrogant and mean. It's important to stay in the right posture and be in a humble state so you can get your point across and not be offended and not be offensive. Life, trying to navigate, trying to find myself. And a lot of times when people are in um, positions like that, I don't think they're even equipped to see their lens isn't even right to see that I'm not being a good husband, I'm not being a good father, I'm not being a good person or something like that. They're so stuck on trying to survive within the realm of what they're living in, you know, whether it's in and out of jail, you know, stuff like that. So uh, I think that was kind of... But like you said, there's so many guys that don't go off and play, whether it's Division One, Division Two, Division Three, NAI, that can be playing somewhere, getting school played for, and getting getting cultured and learning about themselves and getting outside of that comfortability realm where they grew up at to go change their lives. But they don't for fear, for lack of knowledge, and lack of exposure. It just doesn't happen. Welcome back. Today, we are with Brian Carroll. He is a father, a son, a brother, a motivator. He's also a community organizer, an educator, a youth consultant, an author, a behavioral specialist, and the future owner of an early childhood learning center. 
Brian has always been dedicated to serving his community in many capacities and has continued to do so as a citizen of Houston, Texas, where he currently resides. He just recently authored a children's book entitled Super Sharing. He develops coming-of-age curriculums and mentoring programs like Athletic Intelligence, a program which provides life skills, athletic training, college prep, and coaching to young athletes. He's also founded a nonprofit entitled Community Under Reconstruction Through Education, or CURE, and we'll definitely be talking about that today. He's currently teaching at a middle school in Houston, and he's working to open an early childhood education center that will focus on building foundational literary skills. Brian is a titan when it comes to advocating on the behalf of underserved youth. And all I got to say is, wow, like I had to read that a couple of times just so I could get it out. <laughs> um, man, thank you for joining us. Oh, and, thank you. Thank you for having me on. It's a pleasure. So a man who, who <laughs> does choose not to be sedentary in life. Yeah. Um, you do a lot, my man. I don't know how you do it, but <sighs> you, you make it work. Yeah, I mean, I guess you gotta. Now, yeah. one of those things is you're a dad. Yeah, we're dads, and this is a question I don't get to ask too many people. So I want to ask you: What does being a dad mean to you? Man, uh, being a dad is one of the most. Uh, I think that's the best thing. Uh, I think it was the best thing that ever happened to me. Um, it was scary at first. I was extremely scared and nervous um, because you know you're excited about. You know, when you play with your nieces and nephews or somebody, some little kid, but you can always give them back. And it's not like right. you're not there alone with them. Like when it's time to go to sleep and wake them up and change the diaper and feed them and do all that. Hold them so their head doesn't fall off. Yeah, so much. Yeah. The babies are so delicate. So it met the ultimate level of responsibility, meaning I had to level up and really mature in any and every aspect. So I had to be everything that she needed in that moment, like if I need to. It means like if I need to be emotional, I need to be emotional. If I need to be nurturing, if I need to be strong, if I need to be a teacher, if I need to be a learner, if I need to be humble, whatever the case may be. So I look at it as the ultimate responsibility and um, and the ultimate honor. You know, I I serve my daughter. You know, you know, just being whatever she needs. So I mean, I look at I look at being a father as a parent as the most the ultimate gift. You know. I yeah. First would of all, agree with that completely. I, it it's you put it into words very poetically. Um, I agree with everything that you said. I think that's outstanding. Where mm. where does that come from for you? Um, you know, my mom. I think she has a gift to love. Um, mm. You know, some people struggle with traumas and stuff they've been through. My mom, I mean, she's just such a lover. And she always was a big picture type person talking about loving people, talking about forgiveness. And, you know, fire don't put out fire. So growing up, you know, uh, me and my dad are cool now, but it took some time to forgive him. And I didn't really have that figure growing up and being a star athlete and, you know, a cool kid. But I still had that empty void, even though my stepfather stepped in and did a great job. He's an awesome person. But I had that void of. You know, I still question, like, but what about my dad? You know, mm -hmm. why isn't my dad doing this? And I realized that he kind of went through some things where he wasn't mature enough to handle himself in the correct way. And he was still trying to grow. Um, so that void that I always had in me, I didn't want nobody to feel like that. And that's really why I love working with kids so much. I don't want no kid. I want every kid to feel touched, to feel loved. And I don't want them to feel because I know that empty feeling of not having a dad to just do simple things, play catch with you, to talk to you, or you come home and say, you know, just see your dad, you know? Um, so I don't want kids to feel like that. So I've always put a lot of energy into loving on kids. And I vowed to myself that when I had my own child, that I would never, ever want her to ever feel empty or want to have a void that needs to be filled by someone else. What, um, so you say your mom had a gift, has a gift of love. Mm -hmm. Did you, so you had that void. Um, did it, like, did it lead to any trouble or any issues for you growing up being that star athlete, uh, being in school or did you, did you feel like your mom's love covered you and you were good or how, how did that manifest for you? Well, no matter how much we try to say that one parent that raised us at a certain point of time, they did the best they could and they may have did a really good job. 
but two is always better than one. Mm. You know, and I believe with what's put into the universe, there's a reason why it takes a mom and a dad to raise to make a child, because it takes a mom and a dad to raise a child in all aspects proficiently. Even though it does take a village, because you can pull for all different areas. But I did have different voids that I didn't even know I had until I got older. Anytime I was at an event and they were talking about fathers, I would like cry. Like, not oh, like, yeah. like, you ever seen that movie Glory with Denzel Washington? Yeah. When he was getting whooped and he had that tear, but it was like that yeah. little, it was like that third tear. <laughs> you know what yeah. I'm talking about? I'd be boohooing like I just got a spanking <laughs> with snot bubbles coming out my nose. And I didn't understand. I'm like, I'm 22. I'm supposed to be. I'm supposed to be a man. Oh, it's like, like you were older. Like, yeah. and it, it would. Yep. Every every single time I was anywhere, whether I was at church, whether I was at an event, and they start talking about fathers, it was an uncontrollable amount of emotions that would just flow out of me. And I didn't know. And I started to deal with that. And I started to ask myself the right questions. Like Tony Robbins always said, if you ask yourself the right questions, you get the right answers. So I just started mm-hmm. asking myself what was going on and why am I feeling this way? And I started to channel these different emotions and things I've been through, questions and all these instances from when I was five and eight and 10. And I would remember them. I remember details about the emptiness I felt about not having a father or not and not my father not being there for me in certain situations. And I, that's how I really came to my conclusion about the trauma. You you mentioned crying. So you brought up dads and you, it would cause you to just uncontrollable flow of emotion and lead to crying. Did you ever have any reservation about like, did you feel bad or ashamed or anything? I, I say ask that because men like us yeah. and crying and generally is just not accepted. How did how did you how did that make you feel once that happened? Or did you even realize it was happening? It was just. Like, what was that like? It was like an overflow of emotion. And it was very embarrassing because I'm in tune with it now. Since becoming a father, I mean, I'm borderline a crybaby. I just look at my baby sleep and I might <laughs> shut Yo, up. Man, I cry so much now that yeah. I have a daughter. I'm not yeah. you, give, you give me a sad puppy. Like, yeah. I won't you know, just forget it. Yeah, I can't even watch one of them drama movies now. I might be crying more than the women in the theater. So, well, I got tired of having to step out. Like, when I went to my grandfather's funeral, my aunt's funeral, um, when I got the word, I never I was at work. It was a couple of years ago. And I stepped out. My mom and told me my aunt had passed away because she was battling with breast cancer for some years. And I got tired of stepping out to cry. And I got tired of like trying to put on. And it's like I'm putting up a facade. And I said, man, look, I'm at a point now where, look, if, if I'm crying, I'm crying. That don't make me weak. I think that makes me strong enough to be vulnerable in front of people. Like I, I, I can't mm-hmm. care what they think. And having... A daughter helped me with that and just kind of asking myself those right questions because having a child really, it exposes everything. When you got to be accountable and you got somebody that's seeing you every day, if you're really transparent and honest with yourself, it's going to expose a lot of things about you, you know? So there are two directions I want to go. I want to <laughs> start with this, though, um, because I want to go deeper into that. Um, but I kind of want to go back and ask the question if you don't want to get into it, that's cool. But you said you needed to forgive your dad. You've alluded to some situations when you were a kid. Mm-hmm. What was that environment? Like, what was the situation? What What did you have to process um, later in life? Well, it was the anger. First, you, I was like a really good athlete, and I know I was playing baseball. And in baseball, in that community, I was on these travel teams where we traveled around the country, and everybody's dad was active. Everybody. I was the only one, um, mm. you know, playing ball. My dad came to one game when I was in high school. That was my, I was first team all state football player. That was my best game I ever had front page of the newspaper. Mm. And, um, you know, I would think about stuff like that. I never forget one day I was riding my bike around the neighborhood and I seen a friend shooting basketball with his dad. And this guy was a pretty good player, but he was just not taking it seriously, shooting the ball over the backboard. And I said, he ain't that bad. His dad made him do some push-ups. And I was like, man, I wish I had somebody to work with me. I was so intrinsic, intrinsically driven. My dad, I would have been telling my dad, come on, let's go get five o'clock in the morning. Okay, whatever you want, let's do it. I was willing and ready to do all of that. And it was people who dad was doing it, and they were taking it for granted. So I made, I played against those guys hard. I wanted to destroy those guys, but I also was mad that – my dad wasn't there. And then it was just like continuously things that would happen. Then I started addressing the fact that my dad, I was like, man, I don't think I ever heard him say he loved me. 
And then I and it was hard for me to be um, transparent and say that transparent and say that I love people, especially with other men. So then I was like, man, I just had all these emotions bottled up and I started to really get upset. And all these instances, different instances started just coming to my brain and it was it took a toll on me. It was tough. So then I said I was going to forgive him. And it took me like two years to do it because every time I would call him and we talk, I, I couldn't like get the words. I was like somebody muted my mouth. I literally couldn't talk and I just get off the phone. On the sport thing, was there a piece of any piece of it? Like you were first team all state. You were you were good. Mm-hmm. Like, do, do is there any piece of it of you that thinks you could have been better if you'd have had that that constant support? Absolutely. I mean, um, I think it was definitely God's divine plan for me to go to Louisiana. Go to uh, I went to Grambling my freshman year, but uh, I mean, like I was recruited all over. Um, I had a full ride to Virginia Tech, um, and when I came out of high school, that was like two years after Michael Vick had left, so Virginia Tech was still hot stuff. Then, you know, the University of South Carolina, I was going to go play baseball because I got drafted. I was going to baseball. I was going to go play baseball and football there. But um, I didn't have the scores I needed. I, I figured I wish I'd have had, you know, if my dad would have told me to do something, I'd have did it. Hey, let's go here. Like the discipline, that culture set up. Like, hey, we're going to do our work. We're going to take education seriously. And we're going to do sports. Come play catch with me outside. Like, I did everything on my own, you know. Um, so, you know, it would have been nice to have that someone looking at it from a mature standpoint. My standpoint was I want to play. Mm-hmm. A parent's standpoint is, hey, you're going to get your grades first. There are a few kids that think like that, but not many. <laughs> you know what I'm saying? <laughs> so I, I would have liked to have that as somebody that would take me to some camps. You know, you know, just, just the little stuff. Uh, you know, I know what I supply. I mentor kids. I mean, I was just on the phone with the NCAA and a coach at a university trying to get paperwork together for a kid, you know, but I, I advocate. And I actually had brought my score up 400 points, and the NCAA denied it because they said I must have cheated because my score went up too much. But had I had someone like myself that could advocate, then I'd have been able to expect my to accept my uh, scholarship. But it's just about having an advocate and having somebody that can give the kid perspective. You know, yeah, where- I don't think a lot of people realize how like all of the things around coaching mm-hmm. that um, it's it's uh, there's the on field, there's the helping a young person become. A young adult, an adult, and then I realized it when I went from high school to college because some of the guys I played with, I was like, man, like they could be playing for some of these teams that I'm watching in college. But I'm like, why? What's the difference? And part of it is like that advocate, that system yeah. that says, like, hey, we're gonna get, we're gonna take film of you, mm-hmm. we're gonna make highlight reels, we're gonna help you get out there, we're gonna call recruiters and have them come see you, we're gonna. Yeah. Um, it's big, the, man. The educational piece, like make sure your SATs are good. Make sure you're you're going to the right campus, like all that stuff. And there's probably way more that I'm not even thinking about. But yeah, I mean, I see kids it? do it all the time. I see kids that are smart enough to go in the Ivy League that don't go to school. They go work at the mall or they mm-hmm. go work at a warehouse at Walmart. And they Is could that be lack of mentorship. Like what? What? Why? Why do you think that happens? Well, lack of knowledge. Um. I've had kids that say, well, I can't go to college because I can't afford to pay for it. You don't have to pay out of pocket. You know, I said, okay, you're a minority. You can qualify for this. Your GPA was this. You had this school in the SAT. Some of them won't even take SAT. Wait, sometimes first-generation college students, they don't they don't know anything about FAFSAs and all that stuff. Then you got people who are um, just scared of that change. I knew a kid that was getting recruited by all types of schools. He could run a 4, 3, and a 40, but he was scared. He admitted to me. Um, he said, I'm scared, you know, and he never took his SAT on purpose. You know, you got other ones who go into bad situations. Um, I mean, it's just so many different. I got a testimony of one kid. He, you know, had an offer to go to a school. And they were going to pay for everything with the exception of $1,500. So all of your colleges paid for with the exception of $1,500. That's a great deal. So he was going to stay mm-hmm. here in Houston and just go to the community college and pay and not play football. But I said, man, you said you wanted to play ball. So I was trying to get on him. And then I reached out to him in, I think it was in like July. It was This was two years ago. And I kind of just fussed at him. Like, man, listen, you're trying to throw it away. you got all this talent. You have opportunity to do this. And he didn't respond. So then he texted me in September. I just randomly texted him in like September saying, man, hey, how's it going? And he said, coach, I'm about to start my first game. I did not know that he did everything, did his paperwork, but he did a little testimony thing that he had posted on Instagram thanking me uh, 
And I mean, it was really his talent. It was all his talent, but it was just that extra push or putting him in front of these college coaches for them to see him. But like you said, there's so many guys that don't go off and play, whether it's Division One, Division Two, Division Three, NAI, that could be playing somewhere, getting school played for, and getting getting cultured and learning about themselves and getting outside of that comfortability run where they grew up at to go change their life. But they don't for fear, for lack of knowledge, and lack of exposure. It just doesn't happen. And it, mm-hmm. like what you're doing, I mean, sometimes all it takes is one person to believe in you. And if you don't have that, and you feel like you're navigating it on your own. Most mm-hmm. of us aren't equipped with that internal drive to to just make it. To whatever. just do it. Just do it. That's a rare. That's a rare soul. No. Yeah. Where now? If you don't mind me asking, like, was it a divorce early in age? Like, where was your dad? Oh, uh, my parents got divorced when I was five. He was always in the same city. Um, he was in Baltimore as well. Uh, I just think. Like one, th- we had a conversation a couple months ago. He just, you know, kind of was like, you know, I was going through life, trying to navigate, trying to find myself. And a lot of times, when people are in um, positions like that, I don't think they're even equipped to see their lens mm-hmm. isn't even right to see that I'm not being a good husband, I'm not being a good father, I'm not being a good person, or something like that. They're so stuck on trying to survive within the realm of what they're living in, you know, whether it's in and out of jail. You know, stuff like that. So uh, I think that was kind of the situation that he was he was going through. That kind of ties into. So I wanted to ask a little bit about the going to college thing. And I think it ties, at least in my head, it ties to that a little bit. The you know, like not knowing what you don't know mm-hmm. um, and having blinders on for, for what you what you know. And um, I, I know I've talked to my dad about this quite a bit, um, just talking about like finances like even just finances, um, like it was something that he was never super great at managing. His parents weren't. So like just that lack of, of, of passed on knowledge. Mm-hmm. And then um, versus where I look at, like I went to this really good preparatory school in Indy and a lot of my, my classmates were really, really well off. I mean, the conversations were so different between me and them. Like, I was just like, oh, yeah, like, I think I'm going to go be an engineer. They're like, no, nah, I'm going to go be a doctor and I'm going to go to this school and I'm going to go work here. And then I'm going to like they knew exactly what they were going to do because they were having those conversations every night at home. Yeah. And, and then even a step further, they were already watching procedures that their parents were doing or they were studying legal books with their parents because they knew they were going to go into law like they were already so much further ahead than like I was just like trying to get in like I was just trying to get my SAT good enough to get in yeah well I heard this thing um it was a, it was a sermon this pastor in Houston preached and he called the tale of two cities now on one hand Houston is the third largest city one of the fastest growing the real estate market doesn't have a lot of restrictions so people are coming from all over the world to build properties and make a lot of money um it's a thriving city even through the recession it wasn't really affected here but at the same time you got like one in four were considered illiterate you got um a lot of things going on in education in the schools uh you know you have school to prison pipeline you have all of these different things that are going on so just like you said um on one hand it's a thriving place as a lot of cities are but on the other hand you have extreme poverty and you have people who have no idea. So you have people who are having that generational wealth and generational knowledge where they're able to have those conversations about finances, about credit, about how to build things up. And then you got other people where the paradigm is so bad in their community where you graduated high school, so you did your thing. But also it's 53% dropout rate at that school. In 2019, you have schools with over 50% dropout rate. And because of state testing, like in Texas, we have the star test. Most people think somebody drop out if they just stop coming. It's not like that. Most of those people actually go to school for four years. They just fail a class or something like that, or they just don't pass their star test. So if you don't pass your star test, now you have a piece of paper saying that you walked across the stage, but it's not accredited. So you're counted as a high school dropout. So if you've been in school for four years and you failed, you know, you got to do English one, two, and three. One, two, three, and four, and you got to do three maths. 
So saving that you failed algebra one and and then you failed English three. So now you're at your senior year and you're ready to walk. But they're like, hey, you got to finish this. And some people get frustrated and can't see the big picture and they don't want to go to summer school. So they just stop coming. And then it's embarrassing. It's humiliating. You know, so they have different barriers like that. You eventually came to understand and work through these emotions. You've reached a point now. Obviously, you talk about your daughter, but you started doing the community-based stuff before. You started trying to find your path to giving what you didn't have. Mm -hmm. And you did that without that. Like, where did that knowledge come from? Where did that drive to do that come from? Was it just from your loss or was like, did your mom inspire you, your stepdad? Like how did, how did that all come to you know, My mom and my stepdad inspired me. Um, my stepdad is really good with money. <laughs> my mom is kind of a, <laughs> she always find a sale. So I mean, she always spending something. <laughs> <laughs> me, I knew, I knew like growing up, didn't hardly have no money. So when I got money, I held on to everything. So everybody calls mm-hmm. me cheap. I say I'm conservative. You know I what I'm saying? Frugal, you know? <laughs> yeah, yeah, like I have a bad reputation. Everybody thinks I'm like the cheapest person in the world, but I think I'm just more a little conservative with the money. But uh-huh. now I'm learning from, I, I've learned from a lot of mistakes. Mm. You know, like I'm working on building my credit now because I've been responsible. I paid off my car. I'm a homeowner. I have a low debt to income ratio, but my credit isn't real high because I don't have enough debt. You know, I don't have no credit cards and all that stuff. Mm-hmm. You know, okay, so now yeah. I'm, I'm just kind of learning how to game, but I'm like, man, this is, this ain't fair. I don't like this. You know what I'm saying? <laughs> That's funny on credit. When I started, when I started dating my now wife, I, uh, my credit was not stellar. Could be, do you remember those back in the day? It was like, you could get 12 CDs for like a penny. Yep. In the mail. Yep. Wow. I did, I did like one of those. I don't even know how I got my social security number, to be honest. I was pretty crafty. But then, like, I, I had done, like, a couple of these and I just never realized that there was actually a bill to pay. It wasn't really a penny. Like, it mm-hmm. was, like, you know, 90 bucks or whatever it was. And um, so come around after college, like, my credit's bad. And my mother or soon-to-be mother-in-law was just like, oh, she's like, that's easy. You can actually dispute all that stuff and they have to prove that you actually didn't. Like, it's on them. Like, you don't yeah. even have to prove that you didn't. You just submit it in. And so she was like, here. And you get three free credit checks a year. Here, do this, do this. And I was just like, boom, credit score, ratcheting up, 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 up. Yeah, no, like, but that's the little stuff like that. We just have no idea about. Um, exactly. It, yeah, it's, yeah, that's, that's, that's good. That's good knowledge to have. <laughs> it is. And it's, and it's so, and it's, it's simple. It's simple, but it's, but if you don't know it, it'll kill you. Right. Like it's, it's, it'll get you. it's so crucial. Yeah. Man. Well, I'm trying to figure out how to get this generational wealth. And I know a friend, um, he said he was at the park one time. And he overheard a man with his son and they were talking about stocks and the kid. He said the kid wasn't over 10 years old, but mm-hmm. that conversation is a lot different. That's why it's important to have parents that are understanding and, and, and progressive, because instead of us just talking about you sitting down in class, no, we're talking, we're beyond that. You know how to be still and sit down in class or, you know the responsibility that you have as far as academics. Now we're talking about real estate. We're talking about how to properly think and how to communicate with people. We're talking about career choices and stuff like that because we're setting the foundation. You know, are you so, doing that in the school? Well, and I'm a very unorthodox teacher. I I I want people to be the best that they can be. That's why the question I ask people is, "What you want to be grow up?" I even ask adults. When you were 12, when you were 15, what did you want to do? And what are you doing now? And why aren't you doing what you wanted to do? You know, because I'm a proponent of people going after their dream because I feel like that's inside of you for a reason. Some people care about squirrels. I don't. You know, of course, I don't want to see a dead squirrel, but I'm not interested in squirrels. I'm not interested in those the fish at the bottom of the sea, but somebody is. And I don't mind watching the Discovery Channel for three hours straight because I can do that. I like that type of stuff. But somebody is willing to go out there and stand in front of a lion and take a picture and swim with the sharks. I'm scared, you know. <laughs> yeah, I'm, I'm watching my back in the pool because of Jaws. <laughs> so, we need a bigger boat. Yeah. What, uh, what, did, what did you want to be when you were 12? You know, I, I want to be a professional football player or a baseball player. 
You know, I, I wanted to just play sports. I was, and one thing I'm big on educating the kids about who they are outside of just the sports because, mm-hmm. you know, all the kids want to do that. And it's like, I think that's great, but you got a 99% chance of doing something else. And even if you play 10 years, you still got way more time not playing than playing. So mm-hmm. we want to utilize, you know, God put you on to do more than just play ball. So I want you to figure out what you can do because the athletes always think they got to choose. I got to choose between being an engineer and a football player. I got to choose between being an actor and an athlete or architect or working in human resources. No, you don't. You can do all that simultaneously. So don't give the NCAA all of your time. We see the way it goes in college. The NCAA takes up all your time. Then it's frowned upon to be a thinker. So when you're a guy that says in the summertime, because it's no reason why you shouldn't graduate in three years. They get they paying for summer school for you both sessions. And you're up there. You should graduate in three years. Then you should be able to do internships and networking, all this traveling we're doing. But guys aren't thinking about that. So you got millions of guys just thinking about something only 200 people are going to be able to do. Well, and how many don't even graduate? And I know yeah. that I know some of the numbers for male sports. I don't know the numbers for female, but I know that uh, once you're done with your 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 eligibility and your plant your playing eligibility, mm-hmm. like they stop paying for school, and it becomes a lot harder to continue with graduating. Yeah, you're, if you're done. Not still playing. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like they, women are more mature. Like we got what you, we need yeah. out of you. Yeah. So women. what? Oh, go ahead, women. I was going to say the women tend to be more mature because they go in there. Naturally. They don't have a big market for NFL, NBA. They got a WNBA, but it's not. They're not getting $200 million contracts like the guys. So they're, mm, so they're, they're, already they're focused. not. Yeah, they're not raised to say you're going to play AAU just to go to the NBA, the WNBA. Or, you know, so they go to they look at it as I can play ball to go to college for free, not necessarily to go right. pro. So they utilize that. So they're still working on their internships. They're taking grades seriously. They're taking networking seriously. So then they leave school and get good jobs. A lot mm-hmm. of chicks I knew that played basketball are like lawyers and stuff. Or they're in sports management as agents and stuff. They used it to learn. They might have went and played a little bit overseas. But they they utilize it. Whereas the guys, it's like they're building their bodies and not building their minds. And now it's like, I don't play ball in my life now. I don't know who I am. I don't know what to do if I'm not playing ball. And that's what's mm-hmm. inevitable. What's mm. what's what instruction do you give kids that are going to be student athletes to actually balance that? Right. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's a it's a you know, it's a workload. It's a lot. You got to do all these things. Like what what type of instruction do you give to help people or help kids process what that actually looks like versus what they fear it might be? Well, Instead of just trying to tell them, I, I, I work on their identity. Because if you know who you are and you know whose you are, I don't have to try to convince you of nothing because now you're intrinsically driven. You know, if you're doing right just because I'm looking over your shoulder, then that means I'm your main influence. But if you realize that you matter, that you're going to be somebody's dad, you're going to be somebody's husband, you're going to be somebody's, you know, leader, or CEO, whatever, and you realize the value in you taking control of your mind and putting that right output out, then you'll start doing it. So I try to help them to see the value in who they are aside from just the sports. Like I, I help them to see that, yeah, you're an amazing football player. You're an amazing basketball player. But there's a million other people that are there too. What else are you here for? What else can you do? You know, mm-hmm. don't I, I don't want them to accept the mentality that I'm just an athlete because injuries happen. You run into bad coaches, politics, I mean, there's so many things that can happen, and, and, and that, that world crumbling down is inevitable. And it's so short-term, right? Like, mm-hmm. you, you get run into politics as an example, something you didn't foresee or plan for, and certainly don't prepare for that stuff, and all of a sudden you How lose a you? year, right? You didn't make the team. Now maybe you lose two years. Mm-hmm. You just lost you know, 10% of your potential playing time over the next however many years, right? If not more, depending on how long you play, right? If it's college, yeah. well, 50%. So, yeah. It happened I mean, to me. Yeah, what, what happened? What, what so, happened yeah, to you? Like, ask I that mean, question. Why aren't I was football? drafted out of high school in baseball, top, like the top DB in the state. Um, my yard came out, led the state in interceptions, highly recruited. 
but my resilience is what kept me. Um, I'll say I'm, I don't think I'm really smart. I'm just real resilient and I'm resourceful. I'm going to figure out a way. If I don't know the answer, I'm going to find somebody that know the answer. You know, so uh, the doors kept being shut. Finally got everything through. I was going to go to North Carolina, I mean, South, University of South Carolina. Score wasn't. They said my score didn't count because my SAT went up too much. Mm-hmm. Um, so that was a slap in the face. I'm like, man. So Which, then I went kinda, like. I, I just, you said it the second time now. I'm thinking, like, what kind of a response is that? Like, you took the test again. Your score mm-hmm. went up. And they said, like, this high. is a test. Cause these well, tests, because these tests, because a lot of guys cheat. at home. You take it at a proctored location. Exactly. Like, well, like, what, what the advocacy needs to come in is because I was on Ritalin. I used to get in trouble a lot in school. So nobody would have expected me to be a teacher yet mm-hmm. in our system. I used to get in trouble a lot. So... They let me take the test untimed. So when I got untimed, that took all the anxiety out. But I didn't have when they when they when they came against me and said that my score went up too much, I didn't have all the paperwork to justify that. Mm. You know, and that's only because a lot of people cheat. And I know some guys I played college ball with. I don't I know you ain't get a good enough score to be qualified <laughs> to be playing. I'm like, how are you here? <laughs> you know, but so that happened. Then I went to Grambling as a prop 48. Um, I was extremely focused, and that What's means. forty eight? So basically, they let you into school, and you have the condition where you have to get twenty four credits to become a sophomore within that first year, and abide by a certain amount of rules to show uh, twenty four in the first year. Yeah. In the first year or first? Oh, not not in the first semester. The first year. The first year. Oh, yeah, first year. To, uh, to become okay. a sophomore, to like to honor um, them letting you in and to show that you were responsible. So I went there. I was on a mission. Did that. Was doing really well in football. Um, I mean, I was doing really well. Um, my first year, I could play, um, making a good name for myself. And then around week four, week five, the something I'd never thought happened. Like I literally was doing so well as a freshman, more well, my second year in college, with my freshman year on the field, mm-hmm. that I would be in my room and I would just get overjoyed, knowing like, man, I'm going to the NFL. I'm doing mm-hmm. this good as a freshman. I got three more years of I know I'm going to the NFL. And uh, I was actually physically assaulted by a coach in the weight room. Um, they came up behind me, choked me. Uh, I woke up on the ground. I didn't know what happened. And two, I went back to my room and I called one of my friends that was in there. And you find out who your friends are when stuff like this going. Needless to say, we both end up transferring. Um, I mean, it was so, so wait, bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Let's, 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 what? What? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, I'm you telling you, I can write a book. Back. Most people don't know. Yeah, like I, the, the story, um, I was a freshman. I was one of the only freshmen that was getting playing time. We had a strength coach. He was not, he wasn't certified, wasn't very professional. I used to play around with the guys a lot. And sometimes he would try to pick with me because I was a freshman. And I just wasn't having it. And I think he was really, based on what some stuff that was said, and what he said, he was going through some stuff. I didn't have a conversation with him afterwards based on what, People that we both knew, he was going through some stuff because he kind of snapped, and I think he kind of took that out on me. But um, you know, we had some in the weight room. Yeah. What? So what was going on is, you know, he was saying some stuff to me. We kind of had words. It wasn't like me because I didn't have a reputation of like arguing back and forth with my coaches. But um, it was kind of like a power struggle. He was trying to get me to do some weight that I couldn't do, and I told him I couldn't do it. He called me some names. I had some responses back to him, and you know. Um, I said, you know, he, he was cussing at me and talking crazy. And I was like, man, you're not even a real coach. And I'm not saying that was the right thing to say, but it didn't warrant his response. You know, no, no, it doesn't equal choking. A full choking. I could say any words to you, really. I mean, there are very few that would warrant that. Yeah. Yeah. But it was crazy because he tried to get me to like do these hundred pound dumbbells and I couldn't do it. I was like, oh, guess I can't do it. And he just started calling me all types of names. And I said, bro, you're not even a real coach. So as I'm picking up the dumbbell to put it back on the rack, my my back is turned. But even if I was facing him realistically, he's about 6'1", 300 pounds solid. Me, uh, 165, 170 pound, 6'0", uh, freshman. It wasn't much I would have been able to do yeah. with him anyway. Yeah. I just felt the hands around my neck. I look in the mirror. I mean, his eyes were just like evil. And I woke up on the ground. And I called my friend uh, when I got back to the room because I'm still like, I don't know what happened. Um, one of the coaches had me out in the hallway, like, man, is everything okay? And I was wondering why everybody was just so like in awe, like, like nervous. It was like somebody just got shot. You would have thought. And um, I, I go in the room, I call. He said, man, he grabs you by your neck. Everybody try to get him off of you. 
and um, I got them off, and you shook, and your head, hands rolled, eyes rolled back to back to your head like I had a seizure on the ground, and um, and I was like, wow, and I'm 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 mad, and I'm uh, confused because I just want to live a normal college life and play ball, and you know, go to the NFL and just be normal. This is at the time when uh, Maurice Claret was at Ohio State. He was all in the mm-hmm. news. I didn't want that. So I had some pretty popular lawyers um, that found out about this. They called me. The top lawyer at LSU Law called me, basically, you know, convinced me to come up and talk to me and let me do some papers, to sign some papers for them to help represent me. Um, you know, a very popular NBA player's lawyer was going to work pro bono for me. Um, I had spoken with him. And I mean, I could, at worst, I could have got a settlement to get a lot of money. Um, but I was so confident in my ability. I was like, and I just felt like I ain't want all this energy. Um, so I was like, well, this is, I was, I was like, I'm just going to transfer. I can go D1. The realm was one double A, but it wasn't like D1, D1. Right. Louisiana Tech was right up the street. And um, my life had changed. For one, sports wasn't everything. I had an amazing mentor at the church I was going through, the pastor. I'm just an amazing uh, man. And um, I didn't want to leave that covering. So I didn't go home and transfer to the University of Maryland or something like that. I wanted to stay there and I went right up the street. And, and if it wasn't for the resilience, I would have dropped out because I mean, when I tell you, I went from the man to, you know, being on scout team for three years over people that I was clearly better. I was more highly recruited than everybody would except for with the exception of like two people on the team. I was clearly better. I go get 130, 30 yards and a touchdown or something in the spring game. Nobody else was getting no yards. It got to the point where it points where the crowd would cheer my name. Like people, I made it. I made it known by my senior year. Everybody knew who like I was. Cheered your name like Rudy style, like put him yeah. in. Yeah, because it was. You go to the spring game and you'll see this guy get over oh, 120, yeah, yeah. 130 yards, scoring Falling touchdowns. Then the season go, it's like, who is this guy? Where and everybody on the yeah. team knew. You know, so it got bad, but it was a lot of um, thing, man. There's people that didn't go through close to what I went through that quit, that transfer, and I always. Realize, I said, I'll never let them see me sweat. I got kicked off the team three times. One time I got kicked off and not squatting low enough. One time I turned the wrong way in the drill. Um, it was bad, man. I'm not exaggerating. <laughs> it's some people wow. that's in the NFL right now that can verify the stuff that I'm saying. <laughs> I want to speculate for a second. Roid rage much with your uh, ex-lifting coach? <laughs> yeah. Uh, I, you know, I got to see him like a, a year ago. I gave him a hug. Yeah. He's a strength coach at a major university now. Where does what? this ease of forgiveness, like you, you gave him a hug, like that changed your trajectory, at least politically, right? Yeah. Well, and, and playing, like you, yeah, I mean, you stopped playing basically, and your dad, like you, you, it, it took you two years. But where does this? Is it your faith? Is it like where's that? Where's that anchor? My, it's definitely my faith. Um, because I know that fire don't put out fire. Mm. You know, love conquers all. And then my mom always emphasized that. My mom always emphasized that. Um, you but know, does that does that make it easy to forget? I mean, you you just you saw him a year ago, so that's how many years removed from the incident and you being out of school. Like, did it come easy, even no, with your faith? Or I had to bend. I had to pray about stuff like that every day. You know, mm-hmm. I like I would say people say faith come by hearing, not by the heard. It's a continuous thing. Uh, forgiveness is a process. And then I realized, like, if I'm I'm 34 years old now, if I'm looking at you at the time I was 33 last summer, if I'm looking at you and I'm still mad at you about something from college, I done graduated. I done moved on. I'm a father. I'm thriving. I'm in, I'm in, I'm in line for purpose of doing what I'm supposed to do. You know, it ain't it ain't no point. It ain't no point being hung up and mad on that. That's hurt me. He's obviously moved on. He's doing well. Yeah. You know, and he was kind of nervous when he seen me. He's a real big guy, but it wasn't like, I don't think he was scared, nervous, but it was just kind of like, what? Like, I he internal, knows he gave he, gonna, yeah, yeah. He, he was wrong and shit. And I looked at him, right. I just went like this. And I said, man, give me a hug. You know? So. Yeah. Uh, I something I want to ask real quick about, like, the weightlifting situation. Like, he was like, "Put do this weight, push this. And I could only imagine he, he was questioning your manhood while yeah. he was cussing at you and... It, it made so I we've had this conversation recently about toxic masculinity, and it's not a term I use a lot, but I think it fits that that environment specifically, like that yeah. the the male locker room, the male um, 
weight room where it's just like a whole bunch of testosterone pushing testosterone. Like, what do you think about that term? Do you use the term? Do you believe it's a term? Like, or what that that the energy, if you will? Like, what what do you think about that? Absolutely, toxic masculinity is is real. I mean, I even go. So, most of the conversations that you hear amongst homeboys in locker room talk is rape culture, if you want to be honest, and we don't even realize it. You know, mm-hmm. a lot of things that they were talking about that they want to do at the parties with the girls or to the girls and stuff like that. And the toxic masculinity, the more weight you can lift. You know, but when you're 40 years old, 30 you something, are. and your knees hurt, <laughs> it ain't, you wish you ain't lift all them heavy weights. You know, it's, it's more about being productive. Um, yeah, people, I mean, at one point around that 2007 to 2010 range, you had an influx, a lot of people dying, you know, heat stroke and all yeah. of this mm-hmm. stuff about yeah. you're considered yeah, weak coach, for getting you, water. Didn't they pass yeah. law? Like you had to let teams have, get water breaks? Under- yeah, my, my old strength coach was one of the coaches where a guy died at his breakfast. For real. Yeah, I'm talking about two different strength coaches. One, the one that choked me, and then the one that gave me all that hell of Louisiana Tech. So, yeah, me and strength coaches. I don't know what it is. <laughs> <laughs> so, me and strength coaches. That's the that's the title of the book. Me and strength. Yeah. Um, the this kind of goes back to generational knowledge a little bit too. It, it, there's wealth. There's a wealth piece, and then there's also a like, like the the system is definitely pointed towards young black men. I mean, let's just oh, be let's sure. just be real. Of it's pointed towards young black, black men, black and those young black men typically don't have the they don't understand that bail is usually ten percent of what. Like, if it's if you know if it's ten grand, like that's that's not what your bail is. It's actually ten percent. Like, mm. they don't know that, and and they don't know how to go get it. They don't know how to get a lawyer that will help them get past all that, and. Even um, even little stuff like Jay Z talking about, uh, I know my rights. You are gonna need a warrant for that, like to get in the back of my car. Mm-hmm. Like, I don't have to let you in my house. I don't have to let you in my car or my glove box or any of that if it's locked. Like little stuff that some people know, maybe, but not everyone. It's hard and, to know this stuff. I've been I've been to jail twice, not for crimes, but for tickets. And it's 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 scary as heck. You get pulled over, and I'm like, I didn't know I had a warrant. You know what I'm saying? For a, a traffic ticket. It could be something that's $140. And they took you to jail? Twice, man. I've been. And the, the second time, I was like, man, I'm a teacher. I'm like, you ain't got to do this. Um, I said, man, I support the cops. Like, I'm trying everything. Yeah. I'm like, man, can we just talk about this? He's like, I only talk to you off the dash cam. Uh, and I was desperate. So I went to the back of the truck. Then he handcuffed me and shoved me and pushed me in the back. Good thing he got a call for a domestic dispute and had to leave. And then the other younger guy came and was nice enough to let me at least use the phone. I was still handcuffed, but he, he used my phone to call somebody so I could let them know I was about to go to jail. You know? And then we were in a paddy wagon, handcuffed at ankles. And had, mind you, I'm going for a traffic thing. Mm-hmm. I'm in there with everybody. Went from the holding cell, slept, was in there for a couple hours. Then they put us in a paddy wagon to take us downtown to the county jail. I'm handcuffed in my ankles and my wrists. It's pitch black in there and a metal thing in the back. If we get in a car accident, we all did. Can't see nothing. I'm in there with, it was probably about 10, 11 of us stuffed in there. You know, then you go from holding cell to holding cell and you in there with everybody. Mm-hmm. And they said, I had to go through this twice. You For know, a traffic ticket. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Unpaid this traffic see, and this is the thing about criminal justice system. Like people are like, it needs, like it needs reform. It's broken. It's not broken. It works exactly how it was designed to work. Exactly. It, was, it is, like, it is designed because once you get in, like you twice, you're very fortunate. You're not still stuck in it. Yeah, like you have some knowledge. You have some people around you probably to help you figure out. Like, all right, let's, like, I I can get out of this and not be stuck in lockup because a lot of people get stuck just off of something like that. They use you for a day to process your paperwork and saving that you get in a fight and it was just a bunch of aggressive people in there. They cussing out the guards have to come every 20 minutes to do a count make mm-hmm. sure everybody's okay make sure nobody's dead or nothing the guys will get mad and throw sandwiches at the door so the guards will say okay we're gonna start your paperwork over and that's the issue you it take like 24 hours to process your paperwork so if they and start the paperwork job. over then you gotta stay a whole another day next thing they're gonna put you in an orange jumpsuit get about oh, you've been in here for a while you know what i'm saying and it's just it's just and it and it, i mean it all, like i think it's just so important that we always highlight these stories I mean, 
shit, go back to our first episode, uh, three guys on a scooter, right, Ronnie? Um, <laughs> like, cause it's, it's, you know, when I talk to white folk who say, you know, just don't do crimes, right. Or there'll be like, listen, I'll give you two situations. I got pulled over one time in Indiana with a suspended license. I had no idea my driver's license was suspended. Similar mm-hmm. situation. I illegally driving and operating a vehicle. Right. And my license had been suspended for like a year. I had no idea. They put me in the back of the car, brought me home. Mm-hmm. They, they told my truck, my car said, Hey, you're going to have to go get it. They let me go home. They brought me home. Talked to my parents. I was what? 18, 19. I was in college. This was back in Purdue. So actually I would have been like 20, 21 and uh, no issue. Like that was it. Cool. Like moving on around that same time back in New Hampshire, totally different place. Um, buddy of mine and I driving home um, at about two in the morning. Uh, and, you know, sorry, mom, high out of our minds, <laughs> right? Just lit and like terrified. I was terrified. Um, they asked us both to get, like, they tried to play us against each other. They, you know, where's all the drugs? They tried to do that. They, they asked us to get out of the car. They searched the car for, for anything. We didn't have anything, right? We were, it was just a joint. And um, let us drive home. I don't understand that. They let us drive home. Literally, mm. like, let us both get back in the car and drive home. Now, mm. you know, it didn't matter how far it was from my house. Like, that's, and this is where I think it's so important when, when people think about these police experiences, like you said, it's not, not supporting the police. These biases exist. These things are reality. Like this perception Mm -hmm. that black people commit crimes. So, you know, bring them to jail. And I'm just a young, you know, guy who made a mistake in the same way that that judge, I don't know if you saw this in the news recently, but this kid, now he's, the thing's going to appeals because the judge is just out of his mind 70 year old um i don't i think it's in texas kid got uh, 16 years old um accused of rape convicted um in fact he sent a text message um with he and the girl to his friends saying when your first time is rape no joke the judge wanted to give him leniency because he came from a good family and the girl should have questioned whether she actually accused him because he was on the fast track to do things and she was going to ruin his life. Like it. Wow. He actually said that. Yeah, it's in the it's in the documents. Well, have you guys ever heard of the term racial empathy gap? And there's actually, a lot of not, no. there's a lot of um, it's basically they've done a lot of studies on universities and just all over. And a racial empathy gap basically because as a result of propaganda and what we see. In the media and different things like that, they people believe that black men and black women are able to endure much more, so they get harsher penalties. So just look that up, and um, you know they give you a lot of insight. And uh, I always tell people, propaganda work on everybody who watches it. Mm-hmm. You know, so if you look at a movie and you think about thugs and killing and violence, you see black and brown people, so you start getting immune to it. You know, you start looking at it like, hey, well. They're all thugs. You know, that's what they try to mm-hmm. get you to think in a seat. You know, everybody's an athlete. Every black man is not an athlete. Trust me. Right. <laughs> you, yeah, know definitely not. you know You are also white men that can jump. Real issues. You know, just the same way as white well, people even, can't dance. There are even folks. the nightly news. Even the nightly news. Yep. Like, it shows, I, I don't remember what the ratio is, but showing black men, black male criminals versus anybody else mm-hmm. is mm-hmm. it's far disproportionate to the amount of crimes actually happening mm-hmm. so you yeah. just think like oh black male like criminal i mean it's the and, same so uh pete Buttigieg, uh democratic candidate for president up there in indiana i think he's the mayor of south bend mm-hmm. um was at like a town hall and some fella got up and asked him a question and basically the gist of it and i don't have it paraphrased said hey why don't you just tell them to stop committing crimes and they won't get arrested about black people up in South Bend? 
Like he, yeah. I think he explicitly called it out. But Which, like, like, for real. But that goes back but to the earlier conversation. Like you got let off on, you had a suspended license. You were high. Brian had a parking warrant ticket. for a parking ticket, and I, I mean, it goes back to numbers. Like mm-hmm. from the for the police department standpoint, they're looking at you. They're like, ah, uh, he's probably a rich white kid. Like we don't want to deal with lawyers and all kind. Like the 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 chances of this black dude having bringing a lawyer or or getting off on a case are is the chances are just less. Like the numbers yeah. just prove out. It's just less. So well, we've like, hey. we've also been criminalized. And yeah. a lot of people just don't, you know, they don't realize how they, how they, and we got to be honest with ourselves about how we view people based off the way we've been indoctrinated. Think about it, this indoctrination process is real. Your subconscious mind is internalizing way more than your conscious mind. So mm-hmm. when you're listening to a music song or you're, you're looking at a video, you're looking at a movie and you're seeing all these images on social media, you're being indoctrinated to believe these things. So subconsciously you start to buy into these concepts and to make agreements and we don't even know it. And it and it affects all of us. I was just going to go view a property I was trying to, that I'm thinking about trying to get. And I got pulled over. I mean, the, the, the police officer actually almost ran a stop sign. But when he seen me, he had to stop so he wouldn't hit my car. I went through. I got about a block down. So I was still looking at my review. They came and turned down there um, with their sign and pulled me over. I was right in front of the house. And I asked him, I was like, hey, um, is there a reason why I was pulled over? And he looked. He said, your registration is out. I said, no, I have the paper right here. I just didn't have my sticker yet, but he didn't know that from down the street. Right. He just can't randomly came with this and he took my license, went back, then he came back up, looked in the front of my car, asked me another question, and then went back to the car. And I'm nervous. I'm just praying, like, man, I'm not trying to go to jail. I, I hope I ain't got no warrants and I thought I paid all my tickets off. Then he come back and said, We're just gonna give you a warrant. But when they first came to my car, they both came up with their hands on their waist. One on both, mm. one on the passenger side, one on the driver's side. I'm scared to death. Like, how are you supposed to feel in that situation? Yes, yeah, so I'm just sitting there like, yo, I ain't even do nothing. Like, what's going on? Like, Which, like, how does that even... Your registration is late or expired. Mm-hmm. So we walk up to the car with our hands on our guns. How was that... He didn't even know the registration was expired. I asked him. In another state. You yeah. had a register... Like... Li- but the thing about it, he didn't know my registration was inspired until he was up by the car and he looked at the tag. Oh, so he was already going to pull you over regardless. Yeah. They, they didn't pull me over right away. They were coming. I was coming straight. They were coming uh, horizontal. Yeah. And I was like a block or two down the street. And I seen him speed up. He stayed at the stop sign. He stayed there make over 10 seconds at the stop sign. And I was all the way down the street. All of a sudden, he turned, turned on the sign and hurt me. He made the decision he was pulling you over. Yeah. That's exactly what happened. But I have a black Camaro with rims. So that's probably why. Well, <laughs> oh, for sure, you're a target. <laughs> yeah. So I want to I want to ask you um, about Cure. Okay. Yeah. Before we run out of time. <laughs> well, yeah, because I mean, I think it has to do with a little bit of this, though. I mean, you're talking about helping building the community through education. Like, so how how do what 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 prompted you to start a nonprofit and then like tell us about it? Well, I've always been working with kids and I was just kind of doing things off the radar, kind of being scared of responsibility of having to make it a real program. And our friends started fussing at me like you do all this stuff for free that people make a lot of money doing, make it into a program, stop being irresponsible and just do what you got to do. Because all you're doing is the same stuff you're doing. Just do your paperwork. So then that's when I did that. And I was trying to figure out a name one day I was in the shower just thinking and it was like community under reconstruction through education. So I use this as my vehicle to work with kids and a new aspect of it is like a father support group that we're going to bring about um, as my journey. Why did you you add that? Man, I've been through so much as a father trying to, you know, most people don't know this, but I don't, you know, I've probably seen my daughter three times in the last five months. I've seen her for less than 2% of her life. Um, I make the best of my time and I love one of them. It's obvious you see in our videos, we have a great relationship, but my daughter just turned, my daughter just turned two, but you know, her mom has done everything that she could to try to keep me out the, keep me out of her life. Uh, literally like, like don't want me to have no rights. I've never put my hands, never done anything crazy. Um, it's just that, and that's why I think generational um, curses and it's important to, get things together because her father's serving life in prison. So she, they don't see the value of a father. They haven't mm-hmm. experienced that. So they 
just trying to repeat a cycle. Whereas I'm saying, let's break the cycle, you know? So, um, I didn't, I used to be judgmental with fathers that weren't in their kid's life. Cause I know what happened with my father. And mm-hmm. then I was like, man, some fathers aren't there. Granted there's fight, flight and freeze. And mm-hmm. it's so emotionally draining. Sometimes it's easy to just go get another family, but I refuse to do that. Cause I don't ever want my daughter to feel how I felt. So I'm going to continue to fight for her to, you know, have my time and to just to love on her and build that relationship. But there needs to be some support because we talk about the criminal justice system. We got to see how biased this this system is with family court with men. Uh, I mean, we get treated bad, you know, um, no rights, you know, and it's 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 been a long process. I mean, my daughter just turned two. I'm on my fourth lawyer. I spent over twelve thousand dollars and I haven't even been to court yet. My other lawyers would just reset my case to make more money off me. And because I don't know the law, I didn't know it at first. I've been learning more. And I was mm-hmm. too busy trying to make a moral appeal to people who lack morality. And I was getting taken advantage of as far as money, as far as time. So um, I want to be able to support other fathers that don't know what to do, even if it's just a conversation. And also encouraging them every other weekend and every Thursday is not enough time. That's just as much your child as hers. Y'all should be able to cooperate, do something to split down the middle. Um, or y'all should be able to communicate, you know, since when should a court be able to tell me when I can see my own child? You know, somebody who has no emotional attachment don't know what's best for my child. You know, so it's also to build unity among the mom and the dad because there needs to be more unity for the co-parenting aspect. And also just to have, you know, to empower the dads, understand the man, you matter, you have rights and you have a responsibility. So even if you are only getting every other weekend, you better make that the best time. And buying a kid a gift is not enough. Nothing can substantiate for time and the love that you give to your son or to your daughter or both. We asked you about a conversation tip and you said it's about being honest in intentions for, for like, say it's two people for both parties in the conversation. And it's not just about your truth. Like, while everybody has their truth, like it may not be the moment to share yours. Like, can you go into that a little bit? Like what you were, because I, I feel like that might tie into this a little bit. Well, I, I believe just because, just because the truth or your truth doesn't mean it needs to be spoken at that time. Because the point of communication is for me to talk and give you information in a way where you can articulate it back to me or where you can understand what I'm saying. But if I'm telling you something and you're not understanding what I'm saying, then we're not communicating. Just like if you're reading and you don't understand it, then you're not really reading. You're just stating words. So in a conversation, we have to always make sure we're in the right posture and not be selfish. And y'all know better than me being in a marriage, communication is the key. And there may be some things because of your love language or the way you communicate where you think you're giving information and that's not how it's being received. So now another conversation needs to be had about intentions. Because if I'm saying something with certain intentions, but people don't believe that, that's an issue. Or sometimes you can have good intention, but that don't mean you're going to have a good result. Mm-hmm. It could be selfish. Or, you know, like you could be saying, say for instance, like uh, I could want a woman to, I could have a wife and I want her to lose weight. <laughs> so instead of me just saying I could, I can't, some people respond to, hey, you want to work out together? Mm-hmm. Some people can get offended by that. I mean, mm-hmm. wake up and there's a brand new treadmill in the living room. Somebody might be offended by that. So I got to find what is your love language? How do you respond? And how do you feel? What are your triggers? I got to know your triggers. Because when I communicate with you, I got to communicate with you based off those. So I start helping you and don't don't do any harm. But now I'm damaging the relationship. And now I'm putting myself in a position. And I, I, don't, I think we've all probably been here where we might have damaged a situation to the point where the person can't even hear us. I mean, we could say, don't go down there because there is a lion that's waiting to eat you and they'll go down there just because we said don't go down there. Yeah. But because you've, because you've done so much damage to that point where they're like, yeah, I'm not, <clears throat> you're not looking out for me. And, and to your point about the triggers a second ago, like there's, I think one way or another, you know, the triggers, it's like, do you use them for good or use them for bad? Like yeah. you're trying to set them off or are you trying to avoid them so that you can have positive communication? That's why we got to be in the right posture. Cause if you're not in the right posture, you could be right and get arrogant and, and now you're you're uh you're pushing somebody's limits. Mm-hmm. You're being condescending. And you were right, but now because of the spirit and the posture that you're in, you're not you're wrong. Mm-hmm. So it's important not to be condescending. It's important not to be 
arrogant and mean. It's important to stay in the right posture and be in a humble state so you can get your point across and not be offended and not be offensive. That's good. And I would say I I, I would almost disagree that we know better just because we're in a relationship because I think (laughs) – This is at the crux of every (laughs) every dialogue, like every conversation, like with work, with kids, with anybody. It's like, all right, this is a communication, and there's there's a chance for uh, intentions to be misaligned or misunderstood. Or I mean, hell, the atomic bomb was created with good intentions. Look how that turned out. Yeah, like the road the road to hell was paved with good intentions. We got wow, you remember that, huh? One one more question. Last question for the recording. I actually will let Rodney ask. All right. The final. last one. And, and it's hard to ask because you just gave a, a good, I, I don't a even good, know what we need to, but you, hey, you just gave good advice. But we always formality, you know? For, we, you know, we got to be, yeah. Yeah. Uh, we always ask, what would you leave our audience with? Like, what do you want them to take away from this or from you? Um, shoot. Uh, uh, living your truth. Um, be confident in who you are and in your journey. Um, I feel like I'm on a journey that I'm, I'm growing and I, I would encourage everybody else to do the same thing, um, to continue to grow, stay humble. Um, remember that fire don't put out fire and that love conquers all and, uh, you know, stay committed to your commitments. So that's about it. That's Thank you.